jar. Your consumers are telling you what they want from you. And yesterday, you didn't have to listen to them because they didn't have any power. Today, you have to listen to them. That's the real fundamental, like all the way distilled to the bottom level point of the book. You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito. Hello, hello, everyone, and welcome to a special video episode of the Retail Remix podcast. Hopefully, you know me by now. I'm Alicia Esposito, and I have joining me today for this special conversation, Joel Bynes, Global Co-Head of Retail at Alex Partners and author of The Retail Economy. Thanks so much for taking the time, Joel. Good to have you. Thank you so much for having me, Alicia. I'm really pleased to be here. So the core of our conversation today is your book, The Metel Economy. But to set the stage, I would love for you to share a little bit about your background and your day-to-day work at Alex Partners. I think that'll kind of lay a good foundation for our conversation today. You bet. I'm happy to. So I grew up in a small suburb of Boston, Massachusetts, a relatively large family. And so I started working at a very young age and I found myself drawn to retail. I just really enjoyed working in retail. I enjoyed the conversations with consumers. I didn't have a plan. I just had summer jobs and jobs in between vacations and so forth. But I was really drawn to it. After college, I stayed in retail. After business school, I stayed in retail. And I grew up kind of working for retailers on retail problems and then met a legendary turnaround man named Jay Alex in 2004. And I joined Alex Partners about 18 years ago to help build a retail consulting practice. So my background is conversations with consumers. And those conversations have basically gone on for maybe into my fourth decade now. And so that's really what I do. I build and collect relationships and I have conversations with consumers My day job at Alex Partners is to look after the largest industry practice we have. We're a global management consulting firm. We have 30 offices and thousands of employees around the world, and retail is the largest industry group for us. So I stay quite busy, but I also found time to write this book. Yeah, it's great. And it seems like your expansive history in retail probably serves you well in in your day-to-day work. And I love hearing folks that grew up in retail in a way because it's that richness of experience. Like you've lived it, you've been boots on the ground, you've experienced it. So you almost know like what questions to ask, what challenges maybe you can hone in on in your work. You know how to kind of get into the conversation in a more meaningful way. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I'm not a big fan of the generalist consulting model. I, I like consulting, but I like consulting as an expert on really complicated problems, which is what we do. Yeah. So to that end, I mean, how has your work and of course your history in retail informed or even inspired I mean, I'm sure, again, kind of pulling into your past experiences or the day-to-day conversations you're having with your clients who have challenges, who have goals to hit, right? I mean, how did that kind of serve you in your process? Yeah, I mean, I guess at the highest level, I came to consulting very late in my career. So I had almost a full career in retail before I became a consultant. And so I approach consulting as an observer of the consulting business rather than someone that grew up in the consulting business. And one of the things that I noticed is that there are a lot of books that are written by consultants, but the books all follow a fairly similar model of kind of taking an anecdote and trying to create a methodology and then essentially telling everyone, well, if you just do this, 
then everything will be fine. And I, I refer to that as like the equivalent of my high school basketball coach telling me to go home and work on getting taller. It's just like, that's, that's what that kind of business book is. But at the same time, as I said, I've spent almost four decades talking to consumers. And I began to realize this change that led to the book, The Metail Economy, starting to emerge about 10 years ago. And my only objective was to have something to say to my retail clients and to retail and consumer executives around the world about the fact that something fundamental had changed. I didn't really have a plan for it. I'm not trying to sell consulting services with it. I'm basically trying to put the industry on alert that something fundamental that was not the case as I was growing up in the industry and hasn't been the case before, at least that's my contention, has changed. And that has real implications for people's businesses. That's really all the book does is it sort of raises the alarm because at the end of the day, hundreds of millions of people around the world make their living in the retail and consumer economy from suppliers all the way through to retailers and everything in between. So it's an incredibly important industry to almost every economy in the world. And this is a really important change. So that's the nexus for the book. Yeah, I like that phrase, raising the alarm. As a content creator, we use the phrase triggering action or challenging the status quo, right? And I'm sure in retail, well, I know in retail, just from my conversations, there's a lot of legacy for some of these businesses. There are ways of doing things, but there are these disruptions or seismic shifts in consumer behaviors, especially that are points of action are triggering points that you need to respond to. So with that, I mean, the specific full title of your book is The Metail Economy, Six Strategies for Transforming Your Business to Thrive in the Me-Centric Consumer Revolution. And it's a bit of a mouthful, but... No, but it's good. There's a lot in there. So I want to unpack it a little bit with you, if that's okay. So looking at that me-centric consumer revolution specifically, when did this revolution begin, do you think? And what has... I feel like I'm always saying accelerated now, <laughs> accelerated or or maybe even reinforced it, right? Because I feel like if you're kind of, I've been in retail for 11 years, studying it, reporting on it, and I could probably call out a few bookmarks, so to speak, where these big shifts have happened, but I'm curious what really stands out to you. Yeah. So for me, one of the first things that I lay out in the book is kind of the timeline of retail and the consumer economy. And the point that I try to make is not to belabor it here, but the point that I try to make is... Retail as an industry has gone through disruption after disruption after disruption. And we refer to a lot of those disruptions as revolutions, but they're not actually revolutions. They're just disruptions. And the thing about disruptions is they dislocate certain businesses. And that's unfortunate if your business is underperforming or if it goes out of business or whatever. But for the most part, the disruption occurs, the industry adjusts, and it's kind of business as usual. And then to your question about when things changed, it really is about a decade ago. And about a decade ago, the accelerated pace of change was like nothing we'd ever seen before, but the tools that were available to interact with consumers also changed. What I talk about is the power inversion. So up until about 10 years ago, consumers had agency, but they didn't have power. You could always drive to another store, you could whatever, but you didn't really own any power. The retail businesses still chose what products to make available, where to make them available, what price to charge, and so forth. And yeah, sure, a hundred years ago, you maybe were buying at a general merchandise store or maybe a Sears catalog, and then 15 years ago, you were buying them online, but it was still the same dynamic. Companies had the power, consumers either bought or didn't buy, and that was how it worked. What happened about 10 years ago is consumers wound up getting access. They got access to information, which is really important. 
but they also got access to each other. So they didn't have to listen to the companies and the marketers and the magazines and the traditional channels for what was cool or what was hip or what was quality or what wasn't quality. They could start to talk to one another. And as soon as they started to talk to one another, they became very honest with one another about the things that they liked, things that they didn't like. You had all these star ratings and everything else going on. And so that's the big shift. The big shift is that consumers still have the agency they always had, but they also have power now. So that power has inverted and created this idea of a me-centric consumer. That's where me-tail comes from, retail, me-tail. Basically, that it is a me-centric environment now where the consumers are basically calling the shots, not the companies. That's the critical change. And you said it so well yourself. We as executives in retail, we are victims of our past. And so we tend to see every problem through the lens of our past experience. And if we treat today's consumer the same as yesterday's consumer, then we're going to try to treat the problems the same way. We're going to think that we have power and so forth. And that will not work in a me-centric world. That's the premise of the book. That's the first part of the book. Yeah. So this power inversion, then I'm glad you called out that nuance or that distinction between agency versus power, right? Because at the end of the day, you you can choose to not buy something or choose to not shop with certain retailers, but there's that bigger conversation of like accessibility and price. Like maybe that's a viable option for that specific consumer, right? So I think that's a really important difference to call out. But Around this notion of the consumer now having power, being able to talk to each other, I started to think about this whole like chicken or the egg thing. Like, did consumers always want to reach each other and communicate at this level of scale? And technologies just enabled it or supported it, or it was the technology the trigger point for consumers saying like, oh, like I have this thing now, like I'm going to see how far I can take this. I'm going to see how I can use it. Do you lean like a particular way, like as far as like, was technology just the enabler or was it the driver? I'm curious your thoughts on that. I think, first of all, I, I think it's a fascinating question and I'm guessing, and I think anthropologists will have a field day with your question. Yeah. <laughs> if I had to answer, I think what I would say is the me-centricity has always been there. I mean, I don't think that human beings, their dynamic has changed exactly. The way I phrase it in the book is for generations before we made a purchase, we would turn to consumer reports, which some listeners won't even know what that is, but it was a magazine or CNET or whatever. You would go and I need to buy an external speaker. So you'd go to some place that was the expert and you'd look up what they said about things, and that was it. So I said, today, consumers turn to consumers' reports, right? They care more about what Alicia has to say about her experiences and her products that she's buying than anything else. And we've already worked through all the influencers and everything. Like, it really is the citizens who want to talk to the citizens, not to put it in a Roman context. But basically, that's where we're at. And I don't think that that's because people have changed. I think there's always been a desire to connect with one another. But I think in spite of that, technology has enabled us to fragment into smaller and smaller groups, right? So I do think prior to 10 years ago, groups existed. People had affinities. But I think the affinity groups were often quite large because you didn't really have the ability to distinguish. You know, marketers used to target demographics, 
Well, now you have demographics of one. I mean, one of the things that I say in my book, and I'm sure it's outdated now because it was final edition was finalized six months ago, but Facebook has 71 gender classifications now, 71, right? So that is a huge fragmentation of what used to be a binary gender conversation. You would target females or males. Well, so that's just one example of countless examples of how these these monolithic or these large group demographic marketing tactics that retailers used to use have fractured and fractured and fractured again down to, I say, demographics of one. Yeah, it's really interesting, right? Because in the early days, what we would cover digital marketing, e-commerce, it was that opportunity for a brand to go like mass, right? Like be able to like reach a large quantity of people at once at scale. But now it's like we're reverting back to like, okay, like the scale is great, but how do we get as focused as possible for those different pockets or different communities, which we're hearing so much about community-driven experience, community-driven commerce, which I guess ties nicely to my next question that I had for you around just like those deeper, I don't know if it's sociological, but like behavioral traits and expectations of this me-centric revolution. Because it's not just about, clearly by your last response, it's not just about like, oh, we used to just rely on stores, but now we have online now, like that surface level commerce-driven stuff. It's community, it's authenticity, even like sustainability, like that deeper level of expectation or, you know, alignment that consumers are looking for. It seems like the me-centric revolution is so much deeper than just the surface level commerce stuff. Is that right? It's way deeper than the surface level commerce because it's something fundamental about who human beings are and technology enabling it. But you also talked about behaviors. One of the other interesting things, and I lay this out in a couple of examples of the book, is we have gotten to a place where technology and manufacturing and information is so accessible that consumers can become competitors if you don't satisfy their needs. So consumers are actually now not just able to say, oh, I'm not going to shop with retailer X or buy product Y. They can actually become your competitor. If you don't satisfy a need, they can set up a Shopify website in 15 minutes. They can find a supplier in five minutes. They can create a full online marketing campaign in 20 minutes. And now they're in business competing against you. So you have, you talk about behaviors. Not only have the behaviors changed, but the responses have changed as well. So the importance of making sure that you accept that and understand that and treat your consumers as me's with agency and power that's the antidote to the problem that's been created. It's not really a problem, but the opportunity that's been created with technology and information and access. I'm so glad you brought that up because I forget who I was speaking with about this, but we were talking about social commerce and I was like, essentially social commerce gives anyone the power to be a brand. I mean, influencers are brands and now everyday consumers can be brands because now everyone can tag products in their posts. Everyone can add calls to action in their stories. I'm just using Instagram as an example, but it kind of creates this entire dynamic change. So again, like the power inversion, like you're talking about, it goes to a whole different level. It's not just like, oh, I can choose not to do business with you. It's like I can compete against you. It's fascinating. Yeah. And if you think about the way that the consumers that are creating their businesses are marketing those businesses is they are marketing them with authenticity. This is my story. This is what I wanted and I couldn't find it. This is why I created this thing, right? And so that authenticity, just go back 20 years, the authentic people 
were what used to be called the merchant princes, which I know is a sexist term, but that's what the industry used to call them. We used to, these people were heroes. People used to laud the merchant princes of old. Those were the people who had authenticity. Not even 20 years later, it's you and me creating an authentic story that attracts a community of like-minded me's that is siphoning business away from the traditional retail channels. That's a perfect example of the danger of missing this me-centric consumer and the me-tail economy we're operating in. And that's exactly why I wrote the book. So fascinating. From marketplaces to social selling, the opportunities for e-commerce retailers to grow their business has never been better. But selling on more platforms and in more regions means increasingly complex sales tax requirements. TaxShar automates the entire sales tax compliance lifecycle for retailers, including real-time calculations, multi-channel reporting, nexus calculations, and automated filling. They simplify your sales tax so you can focus on the important stuff, like developing great products and attracting customers. Visit TaxShar.com to learn how we can help. So I don't want to just leave the conversation at all of the <laughs> disruption and, and big changes. I want to get into some solutions, some strategies. Of course, the goal is to get people to dig into the book specifically, but just a high level, those six strategies that you kind of outline. Can we go through just a speed round, like what they entail, You know what they are, why they're important? Yes. Let me just put an umbrella statement out that... My editor and I had a pretty healthy argument about using the word strategy. I lost, obviously, because she's really good at her job. But I'm very clear in the book that I don't view these as strategies. So the analogy that I use is these are ingredients. And just like you and I can we start with the same recipe and the same set of ingredients, the way you use them and in what quantity is going to result in one dish, the way I use them is going to result in another dish. So what I did was I basically said, look, this is about creating authentic relationships. Businesses need to create authentic relationships at an individual level. And these are six ways that I know that have survived the test of time that you can build authentic relationships with your consumers. So I just want to be clear that like, because I earlier I talked about my distaste for business books. I'm not saying if you employ this strategy, you will be successful. I'm basically saying if you accept the premise of the me-centric consumer, then here are six ways that you can build relationships with the consumer. So first one is cost. And I'll do them quickly and you can slow me down or we can go back. But on cost, the point is cost means cost. In a world that we're existing in today, consumers are able to rapidly determine whether you are in fact the lowest price or you are not the lowest price. So that's just a warning for retailers that want to compete on cost is how much more difficult it is to do that in today's day and age. The second one is convenience. And the key point that I make about convenience is it is convenient for the customer, not convenient for the business. So time and time and time again, I see examples of retailers introducing what should be consumer conveniences, but because of the way I evaluate companies, I can see how they got implemented as company conveniences. So for example, they offer BOPUS by online pickup and store, but when I show up at the store, the pickup location is at the customer service desk, and there's six people in line in front of me returning previously opened blenders and bags of grapes, and I have to wait 15 minutes to get my order. That is a customer convenience that is not a customer convenience. So that's what the convenience chapter is all about. 
The next one is category expertise. So category expertise is all about being an expert. And I basically say that as a category expert, you have to know the answer to every question or you have to know where to answer the question because your consumers are coming to you for that expertise. So the key operational point in that chapter is if you are going to be a category expert, you got to invest in your frontline workers. You got to invest in expertise. You got to invest in tools and all that sort of stuff. The next one is curation. And curation is a fascinating one because by its nature, you're choosing to curate for a certain group of people, which means you are not curating for a large portion of the population. And curation is all about passion and commitment to being the curator. And the curation point is it's very hard to scale a truly curated business because the farther away you get from the curator, the harder it becomes to, I guess, to just sort of deliver that same curated experience over and over again. Though there are examples of curators at scale, which I've talked about. And then the last one is community. And community is exactly what you started talking about. It's the idea of social commerce. It's the idea of bringing groups together that are affiliated and affinity oriented towards a community. And the key point about community is that you have to be completely authentic to that community. It's very difficult to create a community, but it is very easy to abandon a community. It's very easy to make a decision that seems somewhat smart from a business perspective, but you can do a lot of damage to that community C. So anyway, those are the C's. No, that's great. So I just want to clarify, make sure oh, I, I understood your C, point. Actually, I'm so oh, sorry. Oh, did we? <laughs> I just thought, I'm oh a writer, God. not a oh, counter, Joel. Just, yes. No, I thought I just all of a sudden. So this is now in the wrong order. But the, the second to last C that I skipped over was customization. And the point about customization is me's want to be part of the conversation. And technology, particularly manufacturing technology, has advanced to the point where you actually can offer I always say you don't have to offer a truly customized experience. You just have to offer enough choices that it feels customized. And that's what the customization C is about. So that was really fast. Yeah. So not like full on like made to order products, like enter your... You can. Or it could be like select color, select pattern, like it can be... One choice more than enough choices to feel like I'm part of the process, basically. Got it. Okay. And then I just want to circle back to your point, your umbrella statement, which I appreciated. So reaffirming, confirming to everyone listening right now, these are things that you can kind of do several things. You can do several C's, so to speak. And you can also pivot depending on where your business is, or is that not recommended? No, no, it's, it, well, so recommended, not recommended. It kind of depends on where you are as a business. So if you have a lot of loyal consumers, basically what I always say is, and this sounds like something a consultant would say, but you have to start from your customer and work backwards, okay? And so too often, I see biz- examples of retail businesses that are deciding what they're going to do or what their strategies are that are company forward, right? We've decided that this is important. And generally speaking, those strategies are not as successful as strategies that start customer backwards. So your point about like, do you pivot? You can pivot, but if you've already decided what your consumers want, then it should be harder for you to pivot because then it's about how do I deliver? And you can use these six seats, but you're absolutely right. You can use some of them, one of them, all of them in various quantities. It's just like we're on a cooking show and you and I are about to go to the judge and the judge is going to say, well, your meatloaf is way better than my meatloaf, even though we had the same six ingredients. Yeah. I think that's a really interesting call out for everyone because it's not just like the categories or the C's that you select. It's like, 
how you actually execute upon it or like how much focus maybe you put on one versus another, because I'm sure there are shades of gray, so to speak, like the level of customization or the level of community. And sometimes you have a community, but it's just like not good. <laughs> so. You know, so it is important also for the listeners, which is something else that I do in the book, which you don't find in a lot of business books is I'm actually critical of specific companies. I criticize actual companies, which is, that's not a good business development strategy. So if you're if any consultants are listening to this, I don't recommend it, but I, I'm not writing the book for that. I'm writing the book because I want to talk to people. And so what I found was I have some examples of companies that are manifesting this in a really good way. But there are also examples of real companies that are doing things in a way that I sort of say, this is an example of, let's say, a convenience that is an inconvenience. Because I think it's really important as you read as executives and and retail people that study and write about it and whatever, as we think about these things, it's one thing to say, make a convenience, a customer convenience, not a company convenience. And people can kind of get that intellectually. But when I give them examples real examples and that they think to themselves, oh, actually, yeah, that's right. That is rather inconvenient for me. That's when the unlock happens. All right. So I'm going to put you on the spot then. Can you share an example of like maybe a company that does it well and a company that doesn't do it so well, just so we can see that juxtaposition? I do it in the book. So let me juxtapose this very quickly. Two examples of US retailers that people will, will know. And these are small, mundane examples. There are lots of bigger examples, but these are some of my favorite examples. So on the doing it well, you have Costco gas pumps. So Costco's gas pumps are two to three times as long, the hoses, as the traditional gas station. And they're the only gas pump that I've ever found anywhere in the world that is actually longer. It's longer because they know that most people don't know. Even I've had my car for 11 years. I forget what side the gas tank is on sometimes. And it's kind of embarrassing and it's a pain to pull up on the wrong side and then back up and whatever. And so they just took the problem away. They were like, doesn't matter what side you pull up on. The hose is going to reach over. It's not going to scratch your paint. Everything's fine. Off you go. But if you think about the brilliance of that, if you're Costco, And you don't have to have cars worrying about which side and backing up and slowing the line down. Now you get more cars through the gas line. You sell more gas. Your business does better. But they started with the customer convenience, but it also happens to be a company convenience. That's a perfect example. The counter example to that is many of the listeners will probably remember when Kohl's announced that they were going to partner with Amazon to accept Amazon returns inside their Kohl's stores. And at the time of the announcement, the entire world thought that this was a crazy, crazy idea. It was not, in fact, a crazy idea. It was a brilliant idea as a convenience. Kohl's knew that its customers were also shopping on Amazon, and they wanted to make it convenient for their customers to drop off the Amazon packages. So when they launched it, they launched it in a pilot. They put the Amazon return desk at the front of every store. I went and I visited some stores. It was a very good experience. When they rolled it out nationwide, they put the return desk as deep into the back of the stores as you could possibly go. And I have been a consultant, so I can imagine someone from one of the strategy firms sitting down and making a big presentation about attach rate. Well, if we get Alicia to walk through the store, she's going to pick up a pair of gloves or a T-shirt or a water bottle and will attach product to the return. As soon as you start using words like attach rate, you have completely lost touch with what the point of the me-centric consumer and the retail economy is about. So too fast. I'm sorry to the Kohl's team. 
congratulations to the Costco team. But that, those are that's the perfect juxtaposition of what I'm talking about. Yeah. Well, and I think the point to add to the Coles example too is that like in the early stages, it seemed like they had the right idea. It was when they tried to, I don't want to say be sneaky, but like they tried to like kind of add like a bigger business value compared to the consumer value, which is like, let me drop this thing off and get out as soon as possible. Every company in the world does, which is why I boil this down to the actual six C's and explain that if you're going to compete on convenience, it must be convenient for the customer, period. After that, you figure out how to make money. And if you can't figure out how to make money, if that convenience adds cost to your business, then you find some other place to cut your costs to pay for the convenience. You don't do what Kohl's did, which is say, if we do this, then we'll get this much in revenue and that way it'll pay back and here's the ROI or whatever. So that's my challenge is you gotta stand firm. That's why when you said, do you pivot? Not really. Right. If you've decided that you want to use like a cup of convenience, not a pinch of convenience, then you've got to make sure that everything that you do flows through your business from a convenience lens. And then you figure out how to pay for it. That's what the third part of the book is about is like, OK, great. I accept the me centric consumer. I accept the six C's. Maybe people have other things that they think that that's fine. I mean, I did, I'm not trying to be exhaustive. I think it's pretty exhaustive, but somebody might come up with something. And then the third part of the book is, well, how do you do it? I don't go into a lot of detail, but like the way you do it is you start with your consumer, you figure out what your C's are and what amounts. Then you worry about how you reorient your cost structure or your strategic priorities or whatever. Because if you start from the company up, you'll never get there. You'll There'll be too many places where you say, oh, I know we need to do that, but we don't have the money for it or it's you know too expensive or whatever. Okay. So a few follow-up questions to that end then, like how to implement, how to execute successfully. Final point or final question around how to prioritize. We talked earlier about trigger points and things that may be outside of the purview or focus of your business, maybe ways to challenge the status quo. Can you use the six C's to challenge the status quo of your business or challenge the status quo maybe of your competitive set. So for example, you're in apparel, not everyone's doing customization super well. Okay, we're going to go all in on customization in order to like help stand out, disrupt the category, etc. Like turn it into like a point for innovation versus just customer need. Well, so it's that's what it's actually meant to be for. The framing is if you ask consumers what they want, they're going to tell you they want the world and the moon and the stars. And if you ask them how much they're willing to pay for it, they're going to say, well, nothing. But nobody can stay in business by doing it that way. So when you listen to your customers, what I'm suggesting is you try to distill that, what they're saying down into this, like, think of it as like a heat map of our customers actually aren't telling us they care too much about cost because we're providing a better apparel experience or whatever, but they're telling us they care a lot about convenience and customization. That's what our customer cares about, right? But like another customer might care a lot about cost and not so much about convenience. You know, if you think about what it's like to shop in an outlet store versus what it's like to shop in a high service retail environment, one is far less convenient than the other, but people still will shop in one channel or the other, depending on how they feel about cost. So you got to figure out who your me's are and what your me's want. And I give, that's what the framework is for. That's what the six C's are for. After that, it's exactly what you said. 
what does convenience mean in our context, right? So that's why I say it's not a prescription. Alicia Inc. cannot do the same things, even if we have the same mix of the C's, we can't offer our consumers the same things as Joel Inc. Because we are trying to target different consumers differently and we're trying to win. So that's where the thoughtfulness comes in, which is how do you translate like the perfect example of this, and, and this I use in the book, and I give Brian Cornell and his team a ton of credit at Target. If you go back to the Target experience and you think about what happened when Brian became CEO of Target, he went and he went all in on stores, billions and billions and billions of dollars on stores and last mile. And Wall Street crushed the stock and everyone was like, you're crazy. And how can you be going all in on stores and you know all this other kind of stuff? And lo and behold, that was the right strategy because... Target has outperformed every mass retailer for the last nearly a decade. And they were super well positioned for the pandemic, but it wasn't like that was a strategy. It's just everything they did was me centric. And when Brian doesn't really talk to the media very much, but he has given some say, the people have said, well, how did you know that that was the right thing to do? And he just shrugs his shoulders and said, because that's what the consumers were telling us. It's that simple. Your consumers are telling you what they want from you. And yesterday, you didn't have to listen to them because they didn't have any power. Today, you have to listen to them. That's the real fundamental, like all the way distilled to the bottom level point of the book. So consumers may tell these business leaders what they want. Some don't quite listen so much or don't listen as well. So the folks who read this book or even listen to this conversation get inspired, you know, want to start digging in. How do they kind of get their teams or executive leaders to rally around whatever their combination of C's is and, you know, turn this into actual action for the business? Well, as you might imagine, I recommend the first step is to read the retail economy. <laughs> so, no, but look, the first thing is executives need to, I'm, I'm just a guy, right? I think I'm pretty smart. I think I'm pretty experienced, but I'm just Joel. I might be wrong. I mean, you don't really hear a lot of business book authors say that, but I might be wrong. I don't think I'm wrong. Otherwise, I wouldn't have written the book, but I think I could be wrong. So the first one is you have to understand, accept, do I accept the premise that this is the real revolution, right? Superstores, that was a disruption. Specialty stores was a disruption. Category killers was a disruption. E-commerce was a disruption, on and on and on. But they weren't really revolutions because we were just selling stuff to consumers in a different way. But the consumers have now changed and they have all the power in the relationship. They have access to all the information and everything that we've talked about. If you don't accept that premise, well, that's it. That's where it stops. Come up with your own premise and and then figure out how to be strategically successful. But if you do, the whole point of the rest of the book is whether you like the six C's, whether you want to have them all start with the letter Q, whether you want 20 of them or two of them to figure out what it is that your customer wants. And one of the things that I do, I do a lot of speeches, as you might imagine, on this topic. One of the things I always love doing is putting up this Wall Street Journal cartoon that I tore out of a book probably like eight, nine, not a book, the newspaper, right? And keeping a book eight or nine years ago. And it's a person at a customer service desk. And the person is saying, when you said satisfaction guaranteed, I thought you meant mine, right? And that's it. That's the whole point. So anyway, I don't know if that answered your question, but that's what I would tell executives to do on Monday morning. 
Awesome. So with that, Joel, I mean, this has been such an insightful conversation. I know we actually went a little bit longer than we expected, which I think happens with these books, right? Like there's so many layers to this and I love getting into examples. So I think we did a pretty good job of keeping it moving, but to close things out, I always love to ask the experts, you know, the people who write these books, who speak with retailers every day to share predictions, but also insights to help all of the folks listening, keep pace and evolve. So where do you think this like me centric and me tail world is going? And do you have any closing recommendations? So I'd say a couple of things. The first one is I am extraordinarily bullish on retail. I think that retail has been a critical part of consumer economy since the dawn of time, and it will remain I am super bullish on brick and mortar retail. That's for another podcast, maybe. Stores are not going away. Stores are just changing. They have an important role to play in the retail economy. And then I think the third thing that I would just say is, if you've been in retail long enough, you understand this at a, at a fundamental level, which is one of the things that's so exciting about retail is we are in a constant state of change and we get these body blows from the side that are unplanned. We get customer changes that are unplanned, but really appreciate the value of working in an industry where you get to have daily conversations with the people who are going to determine whether you're going to be successful or not. Never forget that you exist for your customers and cherish it, enjoy it, and love those conversations. And if you don't, then retail may not be the industry for you. That's what I would say. Love that. Joel, thank you again so much for taking the time out. Incredible conversation. It was great meeting you. You too, Alicia. Thanks for having me on. I really enjoyed it. And to all of you listening or watching this conversation now, hope you found it insightful. We'll be sure to leave a link to Joel's book, The Metail Economy, in our show notes and in the description there so you can learn more and hopefully get your own copy. Thanks again, everyone, so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.